Um, today we are in our, what is this, the third week of our manifesto series, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me to study and to work for it. Hopefully you're using the, um, the series guides, and um, we've been hearing really good responses all throughout all of our campuses that people are using them, and they're really appreciating them. So thank you guys. If you don't have one, we may have a few left. If we don't have any printed ones, you can always get them on the website um, and follow along with us for this whole series, all nine weeks of the series, which is really exciting. Um, but remember, this term manifesto is God declaring or God being declared because this is Paul's manifesto, but we are God's manifesto, right? He is declaring himself through you and me. He's doing it again and again. Every moment that you wake, every air that you breathe, every lung full of air that comes into you, he is manifesting himself not only in you, but he's manifesting who he is through you. So we have a question, which is, what are the words that you use to explain Jesus to someone else? You see, the biggest downfall of Christianity is that we forget the first part of the word, the Christ part of the word. And we made this argument last week and the week before, and we will continue to make it. Christianity is Christ, nothing more, nothing less. And if Christianity is Christ, then we do serious damage to it by forgetting who he really is. Now, in the book of Colossians, something fascinating is happening. And I don't know if you ever wondered about this, but, but as I read it, as I read it, I wondered why it is that in the book of Romans, Paul decides that the first thing he's going to do is go for the jugular, right? He introduces himself, and then he immediately starts talking about all the sins. And remember, in the first part of chapter, or the second part of chapter one, he lists all these sins, and, and, you know, the, the Jews were very comfortable with that because he was like, oh, he's talking to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he goes, and you Jews who judge, you do exactly the same thing as well. It's really kind of, violent is not the right word, but it is aggressive the way Paul goes after it to be, begin to explain his theology. In Colossians, he introduces himself, and I wonder if you ever wondered why rather than moving towards that kind of aggression, he takes a different tact and he begins to use words that we've never heard Paul use before to talk about God. Paul goes into the greatest explanation of who Jesus is that has ever been given, and I think it's the greatest explanation of who Jesus is that we find in Scripture, and I actually believe that these next five, seven verses that we're about to study, I think it's eight actually, the next eight verses that we're about to study are the best language we have to speak of Jesus. And I think the reason why he did this is that they were not unfaithful on purpose. This group of Christians, this young church, they did not dethrone Jesus from the throne of grace on purpose. They did not mean for that to happen. They just forgot the majesty and awe in which we can hold Jesus. They were given the gospel and they fell in love with the gospel and then someone came along and said, it can't be that good. And they went, oh yeah, you're probably right. They didn't mean to fall away from the gospel. They didn't mean to be unfaithful on purpose, but they were. They got confused by the teachings of those who had manipulation on their minds. I mean, have you ever forgotten who Jesus really is? Have you ever wandered away from that first love that you had? Have you ever wandered away from those amazing words that we hear about when we first learn who Jesus is, that thing that tipped the scales in your life, that moved you from unbelief towards belief? Not that it's necessarily a, 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 you know, a one or the other option, that's a long journey, but that thing that kind of the straw that broke the camel's back that moved you into it, those words, did you ever forget those? Did you ever... Did you ever think it can't be this good? 
Because that's what was going on in the church in Colossae. And, and one of the things that happens is we, we, we begin to stop focusing on who Jesus is and we begin to focus on us. I mean, Paul makes a bigger argument here than just Jesus loves me, although he does say that Jesus loves you. But sometimes that's kind of all that we're given. And rather than focusing on Christ, on his character, on his power, on his greatness, we focus on us. And the phrase stops being Jesus loves me and becomes Jesus loves me. And all of a sudden, Jesus loves me, and the me part becomes the most important part of this. Maybe, and I think this is what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to remind us that Jesus loves me. The problem is this, when we think of it the other way around, when me becomes the object of that sentence, we really begin to have a problem. We, we, we have the wrong perspective because it lands into a place. And remember, I've said this so many times, if you believe in a theology that leads back to you, it's no longer theology, you're no longer studying God. It becomes a meology and you're studying yourself. And meology focuses on what I need, what I've done, what I can get, what I have. It goes beyond the application of who God is, and it becomes, and I become the focus of what it is that I believe, and that's dangerous. And Paul doesn't want that to happen for the church in Colossae. And so what does he do? Paul steers clear of meology by simply focusing on Christ. And probably nowhere in Scripture is there more of a focus on who Christ is, on what he does, and on how powerful and great he is? So let's jump into the text. We'll be studying chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. You can take whatever translation you like or just follow along. It starts like this, and it starts strong. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's little, I love that language. There's so much to unpack there. Basically, what he's saying is what you couldn't see, you now can see, right? A person is better than a picture, right? In a picture, you see things that might be filtered. It might be when a person shows up, all of a sudden things are, it's a little more complicated. People are a little more complicated than pictures, right? Pictures like you can just put on your desk and they don't bother you. People like will harass you a little bit. You know that, right? Like people are very complicated, but people are so much better. And, and if, if Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, it means he looks like his father. I was in, I was in the store, um, the grocery store in Majra when I was a student missionary, and this guy walks by me, and he looked like somebody I knew. And so I said, hey, sandpaper, sandpaper. Now, that's not just a weird greeting that they have in the Marshall Islands. That's what this guy's name was. So I said, hey, sandpaper, sandpaper. And he goes, I'm not sandpaper, sandpaper. And that's a weird conversation to now be involved in. So I said, oh, you're not? And he goes, no, I'm not sandpaper, sandpaper. That's my nephew. You see, in the Marshall Islands, the gene pool is relatively shallow, right? So people look very much alike one another. By the way, the kid's name was Sandpaper Sandpaper, and you may have heard me say this before, because they had so many kids that after a while they stopped being creative, or maybe they got more creative, I don't know, in the way they named their kids, and they just named their kid the first thing that they saw after the child was born. Right? So his name was Sandpaper, Sandpaper. And for some reason, they did it twice. I never understood that. Sandpaper, Sandpaper. And his brother's name was Plastic, Plastic. <laughs> so that's what was going on. That was a relatively shallow gene pool. Actually, Christ being the visible image of the invisible God is pretty interesting because it actually harkens to a language that we hear in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors and through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken through his son. God promised everything to his son as an inheritance. 
And through the Son, he created the universe. By the way, this is really important. And by the way, one of the arguments that is happening here is that they're, they're making a really strong Trinitarian argument, right? Because we have a tendency to think of God like this. God the Father, he created, then he was pretty much done. God the Son, he saved, then he was pretty much done. Um, God the Holy Spirit, he's guiding us, so he's never going to be done with his job because we're idiots, pretty much. Um, and so we need him a lot. That's kind of the way that we think about it. But Paul is slamming against that, and he's going, no, 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 no. Through the Son, he created the universe. So who was there at the beginning of the universe? Jesus was. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything was created in him and through him. He existed before anything created, says Colossians 1.15, and is supreme over all creation. This creative agency that even the Son has gives him the rank of supreme, the place of supremacy and the power of God, fully realized in a human being. Supremacy, man. We don't say that too often. We don't say that someone is supreme. And that's kind of the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority and power and status, all that type of thing. Supremacy is awesome. And he's saying, listen, this is who Jesus is. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. And oh, yes, there are things that we can't see. By the way, as assenting to Christ, becoming Christian, that's one of the things you're assenting to. You're assenting to the fact that you don't know everything that there is to know about everything that there is. God creates a lot, and he created a lot of things that we are not necessarily aware of. And I know that sounds a little antiquated. That sounds a little, uh, a little mystical, but you know what? We actually believe that. When we sing songs about God's power, when we sing songs about God, you know, being more powerful than any other power in the world, this is because we believe that there are things that God created that we don't see. And then he delineates them. He says, you know, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in an unseen world, everything was created through him and for him. Well, all those things are important. Not one of them comes close to the supremacy or the priority of Jesus. Those things you can't see, yep, he created those as well. And it was all done, and I think this is the crux of the sentence, through him and for him. You see, he's the catalyst and the reason for creation. He's the purpose and the object of creation. He's the message and the messenger of creation. He is all of it, 360 degrees. He's not a part of it. He created it, and it all speaks of him. Even the rocks cry out, and they cry out to Jesus. You see, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. I love this text. And you've seen it if you've walked in on the side or if you've gone to the bathroom. It's there too. I don't know. That's just where we put the letterboard. Um, but it says he holds the universe. He holds all creation together. This is priority. He is the priority of the universe, and he is the sustainer of the universe. And let me tell you what, priority matters. You know how I know? I am a united gold member. Priority matters. No, it does. Priority matters. I get to go stand in line number one. You don't. <laughs> and that makes me more important than you. Except United's been doing a funny thing. I don't know if you've flown them lately. United does a funny thing. There are seven groups that go actually before group one goes. Have you noticed that? There's something wrong with that. So I'm standing there and they're like, anyone with children? I'm like, I got children. I mean, they're not here with me, but I got them. Right? And serving a foreign war. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, you guys go. That's, that's all right. That's all right. Anybody who's a platinum member, platinum, gold. 
Anyone who's a, foul, a million miles, a million miles, that person, you don't have a family. I just feel bad for you. I just pity. All this, da 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 da. And then they're like, group number one. How do you count? I'm not group number one. Priority matters. Especially in ancient cultures, priority mattered. What was first was better often and has more priority and is more important. And he's saying that, that God here, Jesus here, he got there first. He was there in creation. He's been there from very early on. In fact, from forever. In these texts, we don't just have a creator God. We have a sustainer God as well. He holds the universe together, the gravity, the air, the stars, the planets. It all originates from him, is sustained by him, and speaks of him. What that means is that he is not a contingent being. He did not need someone else to exist. We are contingent beings. Creation is contingent. We are contingent beings. We did not exist until we were created. But I'll tell you what, being contingent is not so bad when Jesus is so good. Let's remember, we are contingent on his creation. We are contingent on his sustaining love. We are contingent on his desire for us to be part of his world and even more, be part of his kingdom. We are contingent beings, and that's okay. And unfortunately, in today's modern world, oftentimes we like to be a self-sustaining, a self-made person. I don't. I want to be a contingent being, contingent on the love of Jesus Christ. Oh, and then he brings it home a little bit, and he goes, oh, by the way, Christ is also the head of the church. This thing that you guys are all involved in, Christ is the head of that, which is his body. And we're comfortable with that language of the body of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 12, each, 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 you know, each, each head has a body, and we're comfortable with that language. We're used to this metaphor. But what does that mean for the church? It means that there is nothing greater or more important than Jesus in the church, there's no polity within the church. There's no hierarchy within the church. There is nothing that over, overwhelms who Jesus is in the church. He is the head. I was out of some friend's house. They were Argentinian. And um, he kept, the, the, the man kept telling me, he kept saying, I'm the head of this household. I'm the head of this. In fact, he was saying it so he could go get some water for us, which was weird. He was like, honey, I'm the head of this household. So he gets up and goes to the kitchen. And she goes, he's the head, but I'm the neck. <laughs> that was the first time I heard that. Um, that was clever. And unfortunately, sometimes we think we're the neck telling the head what to do, and that's not true. But like, which part of the body of Christ are you? Have you ever thought about that? There's some popular ones. Like people are like, I want to be the hands of Christ. Touch the world in compassion. That's beautiful. I love that. That's great. Some people are like, I want to be the knees of Christ. I want to be the ones who pray. It's gorgeous. I love that. I want to be the feet. I want to go where God is telling me to go. You know what you never hear? You never hear somebody say, I want to be God's gallbladder. Nobody ever says that. Because first of all, none of us know what the gallbladder does. That's just like spare parts. Have you ever fixed your car and looked at the side and been like, what are all those? Well, they're not in there. It's probably fine, right? That's kind of what the gallbladder is. I'm sure there's someone in here who's like, actually, the gallbladder, no, stop it. It'll ruin my illustration if you know what it is. I don't know what it is. I know that if, if, it's, if it's not happy, they're going to take it out. It's like the appendix. Like, we've got extra parts. Maybe they were supposed to do something else before sin. Maybe, huh? Now they're just... You know what's interesting? Nobody wants to be that kind of a part. You know, we all want to be, we all want to be something great. And so what happens is we, you know, we're, some of us are the elbow of Christ, of the body of Christ. And we look at the elbow and we think the elbow is telling the head what to do. Like elbows are weird. They're wrinkly. 
Have you, elbows, will be, elbows will be dry when nothing else on your body is dry. Why is that? What is happening to the moisture in your elbows? Why do you need so much moisture in your elbow? You get old, it gets more wrinkly. It's amazing. Right? Sometimes we, and then what we do is we just stare at the elbow. You can't even touch your elbow to your nose. So, I mean, it's useful, I guess. The problem is we have a tendency to think that the elbow should be telling the head what to do. There is nothing over the head in the body of Christ. You know, it's interesting, before I mentioned priority matters, and I skipped over this, I want to actually come back to it. Priority matters sometimes when, when God got there first, it matters. And in, in ancient texts, oftentimes, they, they would set a priority to things, and then that priority, um, the, the thing that came first was more important. What's interesting is in, um, in a theology that puts a man over a woman, male hierarchy, theology, sometimes they make the argument that because the man was created first, they're more important or they're the head over the woman. Have you ever heard that? That's fascinating to me because in the story of creation, we were created kind of late in the week. So when a guy says, yes, I was, I was created before a woman was created, so a man is more important than a woman, I'm all like, maybe you should think about the days before. There are a few other things that were created before you. Let's... Let's review, shall we? <laughs> the worms. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> right? But sometimes in ancient texts, when you're speaking of supremacy and when you're speaking of... The, and so what, what Paul does is Paul wants to lock up this argument. So he says this, he is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he's first in everything. He's even first in death. You know, wherever you go, Jesus has been there before. He's already been there, and he's already done that. Life, yeah, absolutely. Death, yep, absolutely. Resurrection, yes, absolutely. Whatever, Jesus has been there first. Pain, yes, he was there. Suffering, yes, he was there. Lazarus resuscitated, no, Jesus resurrected. He's been there, he's seen it, he's done that. First in everything. And then there's this text that I just, this is to me the apex. To me, this is just the amazing thing that, that God gave Paul to write. He said this, for in, his, in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Other texts say it this way, God was pleased to pour everything he was into Christ. That means that when you see Jesus, you see God. All that God is so is Jesus. You can't separate one from the other. The fullness of God is seen 100% in Jesus. And by the way, I mentioned it before, good Trinitarian theology always focuses on Jesus. Why? Because when you see Jesus, you see the Father, always. And when you even think to see Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has guided you to look at Jesus who is the full revelation of the Father. You can't have one without the other, all three, all the time. I once had a guy come up to me and says, you know, you talk about Jesus a lot. I said, I do, you're right. And he says, you think God ever gets jealous? <laughs> uh, no. And he goes, well, I don't know, I do. I was like, well, okay. And I was like, listen, if I talked about your son, would you be jealous? And he's like, well, no, he's my son. And he was like, why? Well, never mind. Never mind. I thought I had made the argument. Maybe I did. Maybe he, hit it. Maybe he was walking home and he was like, oh. 
he's gone. Listen, have you ever seen the fullness of God? Have you ever seen the fullness of God as expressed in Jesus? I mean, there was something that made you make that decision the first time. There was something that did. Something that brought you over the edge. Have you seen the fullness of God? When you look at Jesus, do you see not just a best friend, but a universe? Not just, not just a great guy or a wonderful teacher, but the God of all of heaven, the creator of it all. Do you see that when you look at Jesus? If you don't, you've been given something less than the God that we find in Scripture. You've been given a good idea, but you haven't been given God in His fullness. You've been given a nice way to live or, 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 or a, a, a great way to choose lifestyle, to make lifestyle choices, but you have not been given the power of the universe held within who Jesus is. And if you haven't been given that, I'm sorry. Somebody did you a disservice to not explain to you how big God is. When I read 117 where it says he holds creation together, other texts say it this way, he holds the universe together. And I like that better because that makes us seem bigger. Because we're so narcissistic, we think creation is just our little planet. But the truth is he holds the universe together. The strands of everything come into his hands and he holds them together. He is sustaining all life that we know about. That's Jesus. When we've been given something less than that, we've been done a disservice by somebody who didn't quite get it or by somebody who wanted to manipulate you into you acting a certain way. And when that happens, that is exactly what was going on in the church in Colossae. The same thing. Preachers were coming and going, he can't be that good. He can't be that big. He can't be that real. He can't be that complete in his salvation. He can't do those things. And they went, yeah, it does seem kind of unreal. It does seem kind of unbelievable. It does seem, you're right. You're probably right. Nothing's that good. Jesus is that good. Or else why do we worship him? I'm good. Nobody worships me. Yeah, because I'm not God. And Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. Why? And I love that he explains it. Chapter 1, verse 20, he says, And through him, through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So what Jesus did was complete. And it was for you. He made peace with everything on earth and all that would be on the earth, and that includes us. That means 2,000 years ago, somehow you were considered, and I was considered, and you were reconciled to God. Of course, he does not coerce it, but he allows us to choose it. And then he goes, hey, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and your actions. And I wonder if Paul isn't saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek because that's kind of where the church in Colossae had fallen. They had fallen away. And so he's like, hey, this includes you who were once far away from God. And that's, that's almost an indictment. But he says, yes, yet now he is reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Yeah. And here's the thing. In your head, this is the narrative that you get. Now, nah, if he only really knew me, 
If you only really knew me, I got faults, man. I carry around a lot of stuff. I'm not holy and blameless. In fact, all I see are my blemishes. How many of you had acne when you were younger? You don't have to raise your hand. It's all right. I did. I had acne when I was younger. I had it on my face. I had it on my back. It was, and man, by the time, by the time I was 12 or 13, it was just, it was showing up. And every time I looked in the mirror, that's all I could see, right? I didn't see my face anymore. I saw the things that were on my face, the things that were on my shoulders. And it was, it was hard. It was overwhelming, you know, when it, your face looks bruised and, oh, it was bad. I, t- I took so much medicine, and I took so much medicine. I was on antibiotics for like 10 years. And it didn't kind of go away. Like it hung around for a long time. And I just kind of couldn't see myself. Like I was, on, I was on patrol every morning when I looked in the mirror. And then I went on this stuff called Accutane. Have you ever heard of it? That stuff will suck the moisture out of a three-mile square radius. <laughs> I understood why my elbows were dry because my eyeballs were just as dry at that point. And it caused depression. It was not a great experience. But there was one thing that happened. About two, three weeks after I had taken it, I got up one morning, I looked in the mirror, and I saw my face because the blemishes had all gone away. And all of a sudden, I could see my face for the first time in years because there was nothing else there but just me, the person that God had created. And all of a sudden, like, it was good. I mean, I looked in the mirror. I was like, whoop. Well, who are you? Where have you been hiding? That's a silly illustration, but it made me feel different because I, I was without blemish for a moment. You know, the story, of, the story of the burning bush, which I reference often because it's a fascinating story to me. Moses is walking by, the bush is burning. God speaks out of the bush and he goes, hey, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. No, it wasn't. It was just dirt. But when God showed up, it became holy. So you stand in front of God. You don't stand alone in front of God. You stand in front of God with God by your side. And that means that you are holy and blameless in his sight. And if you have that narrative in your head that says, well, if you knew me, you know what? He does. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he's willing to call you holy and blameless without a single fault perfect in God's eyes because of what Jesus did on the cross and the way he revealed who God is through his love on the cross. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. And then Paul says to the church in Colossae, and he's saying it to us today as well, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. What's going to happen is you're going to hear these words and you're going to walk out of here and you're going to be like, I love Jesus. This guy is amazing. He's huge. And somebody's going to go, he's not that big. And you're like, yeah, maybe he's not quite that big. No, don't do that. And this is what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae. He's saying, listen, he is that big. He is that great. Do not drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Now, the problem is some of us heard the good news and it wasn't good. Some of us heard the good news and it became, it became a binding to a lifestyle, or it became binding to a judgment, or it became a binding to something less than the freedom that we have in Jesus. If that's what was given to you today, I'm sorry, you were not given the gospel. You were given something wholly other. You were given something that seemed like it might be Jesus, but it wasn't Jesus because Jesus sustains. Jesus sustains it all. He does not 
change. He does not diminish. So if you think he's less than you thought when you started, you are listening to the wrong teacher. Because he is that good. He is that great. And he makes you that holy as you stand in front of God. And then Paul says, listen, the good news is preached all over the world. And I, Paul, I am blessed. I'm appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. He's admonishing them to stand firm. So I got a question that I'm going to ask you today. And listen, we don't do this that often. I don't make a call that often. But we've got some time in our program tonight that we would love to do some baptisms if some of you really want to receive that gospel, that Jesus who is that big. So we're going to make a call today, but I'm not going to make a call where you come walk up here. We do that once a year on Easter usually. That's kind of our practice. But this year, this today, what we're going to do is we're going to ask you if you remember when you met Jesus for the first time. And if it's today, man, praise God for that. So we're going to show a video of someone who, who reconnected with Jesus through Crosswalk. And then we're going to sing a song. I'm not going to get up and I'm not going to make a hard sell. I'm not going to pray you into coming forward. Just if God is, is moving on your heart, and if he is, great. If he's not, that's fine too. We're going we're gonna to have a great time tonight and celebrate tonight no matter what. But if God is tugging on your heart and you think, you know what, I wouldn't mind getting baptized with my community tonight. We just want you to either come up here after the service and talk to one of our prayer team or anyone who's got either a Lovewell shirt or a Crosswalk shirt. So if you wore your shirt today and you're not part of the staff, that's fine. You're on deck like you're on duty. Just, just love, them into the, love them into the body of Christ, right? So we call this kind of a soft call, but it's, it's not. Every time I read this scripture and every time I preach on this scripture, I'm reminded of not only the goodness of God, I'm reminded of the expansiveness of God, that his goodness is huge, that his love is overwhelming, that his love is relentless, and I want to recommit my life as well. So if that's something that you want to do, whether you've been baptized before and it's time to recommit, or whether you've never been baptized and this is the thing, that's the call I'm making today, and this is it. It's, you know, relatively low impact, I suppose. But we want you to know that we want to walk with you on that journey because We come to work every day believing in a God that's that big. That's what sustains us. That's what motivates us. That's what drives us. We come to worship with that kind of excitement that we get to stand in front of the throne of grace, holy and without blemish, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. We do that with incredible excitement and an incredible amount of energy. Nobody works as hard as the people who know how big and amazing Jesus is. So that's the mechanics of it. That's what's going to happen today. If you feel God tugging on your heart, let's make a move. If not, that's cool too. We love you either way. And if that's a seed that begins a journey, cool, man. We're with it. But I, I don't ever want you to forget And I always want you to feel like you can go back to Colossians 1, verse 17, amazing. Verse 19, phenomenal. And then the admonition that he gives us in verse 23, that you have to stand firm in the craziness that is the gospel. Stand firm in the idea that it is that big, that it is that good, that God is that amazing. And you are holy and without blemish because of it.